Welcome to the Tell Me Something Real podcast. Real people, real stories, real talk. Greetings, realists. Welcome to this episode of the Tell Me Something Real podcast. Hello, Kelly. Hi, Heather. It's been so long. I know. Where did the month go? All of a sudden, a month has passed. Uh, Yeah, time is a construct. So, So, (laughs) (laughs) well, uh, I can tell you that I've been just so deeply invested in this Alex Murdoch, Murdoch, Murdoch trial in South Carolina. Everyone says his name differently. And I'm like, is it? I mean, it's Murdoch, right? It's M-U-R-D-A-U-G-H. Yeah, so it looks like Murdaw, but I believe yeah. it's a Scottish name and the actual pronunciation is Murdoch. Okay, but, but no one pronounces their name the way that whoever invented it and then came across some some ocean and then changed it when they got here. And then, I mean, they're like, if he is actually saying his name like that, it's because he's pretentious. <laughs> I'm serious. I hear I so when he says his name and when his family says his name, to me it sounds like they say Murduck. You know what? I don't even care what his name is. He calls his kids Buster and Paul Paul or whatever. Like I don't I who cares how you pronounce his last name? Anyway, this guy. <laughs> so this guy. Oh my God. This well, guy. today. Today, I mean, it's not today that the podcast is being released, but today that we're recording is the day that the judge sentenced him. So Mm -hmm. for those living in a cave, Alex Murduck was found guilty. Let's just call him that because it's just fun. Way funnier. Is was found guilty uh, on March 2nd of first degree murder against his wife and his son. Mm -hmm. And this morning, the judge sentenced him, but only after giving him a very spicy lecture. I love the judge. (laughs) I've watched this twice now because it's so good. I think I might just watch it on repeat because he's so calm. And I spend a lot of time in courtrooms and judges do this kind of stuff a lot. Like sometimes they yell and they try to like really like hammer into people, but sometimes they're so calm. And they just like express extreme disappointment. And it's just like a knife, you know, gutting this person. And, you know, he goes into like, you know, being stripped of his law license and how he got up on the stand and continued to lie and that he's not credible that to believe that he's being confronted with all these financial crimes, that his dad dying Um, that boat case where his son supposedly killed this young lady in a boating accident that that all that was crashing down on him and for him to sit on the stand and say that it was just a normal day the day that his wife and son died just a normal day everybody getting along he's like I don't find that to be believable at all Mr. (laughs) Murdoch he just like ripped this guy a new asshole it was so pleasant to watch so I am thrilled about the guilty verdict. I felt he was guilty all along. And I have to say, though, so this trial sort of came on the heels of us doing that deep dive into Casey Anthony. And honestly, I believed that he was going to get a not guilty because it seemed so similar. Yeah, I think a lot of people did. 
yeah, it was all circumstantial evidence. There was really nothing directly linking him, you know, to that crime. Well, no, that's not true because the thing, the, the thing that got him was the um, video that his son made that had him at the place when he repeatedly said he wasn't at the place where his wife and son were murdered, yet his son had taken a video that clearly showed that he was at the place and he wasn't going to say, oh yeah, I was at the place like five minutes before they were there. So he kept saying, I wasn't there. I wasn't there. I wasn't there. If his dumbass hadn't kept saying I wasn't there, then there might have been a chance, but like he just, I mean, he outright lied when there was proof that he was there. Yeah. And I think it was a flaw. I mean, obviously him getting up on the stand and testifying was a huge mistake. The juror that went on Good Morning America today and talked about the deliberations was like, he was not believable. When he got up on that stand and I looked him in the eye, he was not crying. There were no tears. Nothing he said felt real, you know, but when he got up on that stand and he said, okay, it was me at the kennels. I think he'd have been better off being like, it wasn't me. It was somebody else, and I don't know who it was, because when he finally admitted to that lie, the prosecution was able to build this narrative that said, you will only admit the truth when you're totally cornered. So we would never be able to get you to admit to this murder unless we had a video of you murdering your wife and kids, because here you finally admit after like 12 people that he knew got on the stand and identified that as as his voice. He finally admitted to it. But what I was going to say about the difference between the Casey Anthony case, uh, and this is something we talked a lot about in that episode, was that the jury wasn't comfortable convicting her to uh, be sentenced to death Mm -hmm. on circumstantial evidence. And here the prosecution, while death could have been an option, they went with life, 30 years to life. And I think a jury has a much easier time sending a guy to prison who honestly was already going to be in prison for the rest of his life due to the hundred something financial crimes he committed totaling millions and millions of dollars against his clients his yeah it's like a Tom Girardi thing oh yeah no he was like not he wasn't doing it quite as well as he was doing like everything he did like all the things like when when okay so I haven't been following this case I think I've heard the most about this case today and yesterday on podcasts that that. I listened to um because while the podcasts I listened to have been like kind of you know referencing it they haven't really been talking about it and I am just not interested in it so um I heard the most about it today and you know everyone was saying it's it's just like a movie only in a movie it wouldn't be a good movie because it would be completely unbelievable all of the batshit crazy stuff that has happened in this man's and when you start listing the things and I don't know the timeline of the things because I haven't watched you know the millions of documentaries that are out on it now I only watch so there's the like one. the thing about the the boy dying that the son might have been in a relationship with so that was number one the old okay and was, when did that happen do you know I'm not sure but it happened first so okay maybe 2016 ish oh, okay so and then guy, there was the boat found thing. dead then the boat thing happens, I think, about 2018, 2019. Mm-hmm. His wife and son are murdered in 2021. And then he was shot. And then he faked his own roadside shooting. His wife and son were shot in June of 2021. He faked the roadside shooting in September of 2021. 
There's also the mysterious death of their oh, housekeeper. The, the housekeeper who fell, and then they, they were supposed to get all this. Uh, their family yeah. was supposed to get all this money, and then didn't get any money. But then they did. Then they sued. And again, when the and housekeeper got... died, like supposedly so... he was like standing over her body, and he's like, her last words were that the dogs tripped her. What? what i don't know i don't know about that but i will tell you that's that what he that, said that was what happened that's what that, he's that's what happened when the cops arrived he was standing over her body and he was like i was here when she took her final words and she said that the dogs ran under her feet and she tripped well what i can tell you they play in the netflix documentary is the 911 call his wife maggie calls 911 totally calm monotone no emotion and I want to tell you that in this uh, trial, they did a visit of the property at Moselle. Yeah, I saw that. Gloria Satterfield, the housekeeper, died. We're talking four steps going up to a front porch. And when did she, when was that? So I think that was before the boat case, but after the Smith guy was found dead in the road that okay. was supposedly romantically linked to the oldest son. Okay. But there's so, just like, so much. Kind of... I don't understand how this many things can happen. Like you can't have this many coincidences, you know, like you can't have, you can't just kill. It's like the Kennedys. He's like the yeah. Kennedys. Well, you see that in the beginning, things are not. Or the Baldwins. He's like a yeah, Baldwin things or a Kennedy. Are, things are going away very quickly. That's what's actually so shocking. So mm. when Stephen Smith is found dead in the road, clearly not hit by a car, somebody beat him to death and left him there. That oh, I thought he was hit by a car. No, he was I thought they ran him over on purpose. No, he, okay. they, the coroner or the pathologist determined that he was, these were not car consistent okay. with being hit by a car. This is not injuries from being hit by a car. Okay. So the whole community is like up in arms. This young high school kid found murdered. Everybody wants to find who did it. And then suddenly nothing. It just goes away. Mm. It just disappears. Murders don't happen like that normally. They don't just disappear unless the police or somebody inside is covering it up. That was the comment of people in the community on the Netflix documentary. They felt that there was a lot of interest in that case. And then all of a sudden mm. nobody mm -hmm. was investigating it. The police weren't doing anything. And it just went out of the news like overnight. And okay. Fine. Did that Nobody's... kid have family that was worried about him and that was all upset? Yeah, his, or... his mom was interviewed in that Netflix documentary and and she clearly is pretty upset and concerned and still wants to bring to justice the killer. Mm -hmm. um, there's nothing more than rumors floating around that it is somehow related to the Murdoch family. Mm -hmm. So that one goes completely away. Then next you have Gloria Satterfield dying very mysteriously falling two steps down. And how old over was she? Dogs. Just out of curiosity. Not that old like 50s or 60s maybe so late 40s early 50s oh, wow. is okay. what it looked like but she had been paul's kind of housekeeper slash nanny uh it's were she and alex having life. an affair no there was no an old rumors. lady they had there there was no rumors of them having an affair okay um what was all. the point of killing her then i think because he had cooked up a scheme to sue himself for the insurance money of oh, somebody okay. dying on their property in an accident and knowing that he would then just do his smoke and mirrors routine with this poor family they wouldn't know the difference if it's if like every single one of these is about insurance money yeah yeah um 
And so, so no suspicion. Now that case has been reopened and they are investigating him in the death of this lady. I saw that they were exhuming her body. Yeah. Yeah. And his, and her son came up on the stand and testified for the prosecution in this murder trial. And Mm. it was powerful testimony Mm. to see how he had treated this lady that was really like family to them. Right. Mm -hmm. And again, the wife, she's literally on the phone. I one like, yeah, she's not responsive. I don't know. I just want to get off the phone. Just get here and hangs up. She is unconcerned. So, you know, you think about Maggie Murdoch being a victim in this case. But to me, when I hear that 911 call, I'm like, she's just as cold and calculated and uncaring. I guess I didn't even consider her at all. When I thought about these other murders, it didn't even occur to me. And they were like separated when he killed her, right? That didn't come out in the trial. What did come out is that there was one time he did have an affair uh, with somebody many years earlier and Maggie had always held that over his head. And so even though there was no indication that he continued any affairs or was continu- or having affairs leading up to these murders, uh, it definitely seemed like it was something that she liked to bring up and uh, kind of use against him whenever they would fight. Oh, or, or okay. Whatever. For some reason, I thought that she was living in a separate location. So she was living in a separate location, but they owned multiple homes. So uh, Alec Murdoch had to live at this house in Moselle because he worked in Hampton and Moselle property was right outside of Hampton. But after the boating accident, um, the town of Hampton really rallied against the Murdoch family. And you see that in the Netflix documentary. Mm -hmm. And I want to just quickly say here that when I saw that Netflix documentary, which came out, I think the night before Alec testified in the murder trial, I knew they were going to find him guilty because you could see the hatred and animosity in the community for Alec Murdoch because of the way he handled that boat trial. People okay, wait, want to see pause. him go down. Is his name Alec or Alex? I genuinely it's don't know. It's spelled Alex, as in it's Alexander. His name is Richard Alexander Murdoch. But he pronounces it, because this is the guy, right? He's like, I just come up with pronunciation. He pronounces it Alec, like Alec Baldwin. But, it's but he calls spelled, his son Buster. You just don't get to have like. Well, Buster is like Richard Alexander Murdaugh the third. But you just don't. You can't. You can't try to be all like fancy if you're calling your kid Buster. I'm. I well, look, his, I don't mean to judge. I his do, grandfather, don't. who was a prominent prosecutor, his family were the prosecutors in that area for over a hundred years mm-hmm. he went by buster so i think okay. that it was very much a term of like okay affection Got yeah it. in honor of the grandfather and because you can't have to richard alexander you know you got to have a nickname when you have a but is buster the one who's still living he is still alive okay and boy oh boy i would love to read his mind because he was stone-faced in that courtroom for the most part and the jail calls tell us that he stands by his father, but I wonder how he feels if he really is like, this was a wrongful conviction against my dad. Is he so far down the rabbit hole that nobody in that family is willing to accept reality? That's kind of where I'm at. Mm-hmm. I think I think families like this don't live in reality. They haven't lived in reality in so long or if ever in their lives. That well, they and if you're a child 
who's grown mm-hmm. up in this, then how would you possibly, I mean, you grow up thinking that your parents are the right are doing the right thing. And if he thought that his parents were like prominent, he thought his family was prominent and, you know, I just know they just kept saying the word. The only part of the trial that I watched was when the, the, I think the prosecutor was asking him if he considered his family prominent and he's just like prominent prominent well what does prominent mean yeah. prominent I don't know prominent I mean if and you he, mean <laughs> he, like, used, oh he, used that, he used that in closing he's like this man <clears throat> won't even admit that his family was perceived as wealthy mm-hmm. and he's making millions of dollars a year owns multiple homes and he can't even agree that people view him as wealthy or prominent yeah he, they 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 hammered that home so um so anyway, so you so you have the Gloria Satterfield thing, which kind of also just went away. Nobody cared. But then the boat accident happened. Yeah. And that's when people started to pay attention because you had multiple young people who had a shared experience where they were on a boat and they knew yeah. who was driving. And one of their dear friends, this sweet, beautiful young girl who's dating this, you know, young guy. They just are the cutest, perfect little couple. He went on to the Netflix documentary and he's like that cute little Southern boy that's like so polite and charming. And it just broke my heart to think this, you know, person was robbed it from him. So mm-hmm. Alec Murdoch comes into the hospital and there's all this footage and all these different witnesses that talk about this in the Netflix documentary. And he immediately tries to control the scene. He's got mm-hmm. his prosecutor's uh, badge. So if you're a prosecutor, you get a badge, like a, a cop almost. He was yeah, I was wondering what that meant because they kept talking about him getting his badge and I was like, I don't even know what that means. That so like I said earlier, his family, his dad, grandfather, great-grandfather had been the prosecutors in Colleton County for over a hundred years. And yeah. like, so I understand he, that they were on both sides of the law, essentially. Yeah, yeah. So he was a volunteer prosecutor and they brought him in occasionally to help with cases, but that meant he had a badge and he admitted in his testimony that he rode with that badge visibly in view on the dashboard of his car because it helped him with law enforcement if he were to get pulled over. Mm -hmm. And when he showed up to the hospital the night of the boat accident, he had the badge in his pocket. You can see it in the uh, security uh, camera footage at the hospital. He's outwardly displaying this badge. He it seems like if around. his family's really so prominent, he wouldn't need a badge to carry around. But I think it's just part of the this that the act, right? He yeah. comes in there saying and, like seems weird. And, and you gotta remember, like take yourself back. And I don't know how much you connect with this, but I grew up in private school. And when you're a friend, you know, when you're like a friend of a rich person who has, you know, access to fun things like boats and you know, all this money and, and other things, like you almost have to default to like, well, it's their boat. I mean, we're getting to hang out with this rich person. They're, you know, taking us to all these fun things. They're paying, you know, you know what I'm okay, saying? Okay, so no, don't really know what you're saying, Heather, because I seriously never experienced that like in my entire causes, childhood. Like I never had you, any rich friends. I'm You were like my richest friend. <laughs> and I wasn't rich. But I, but going to private school, I was forced to associate. They didn't like me very much, but of course associate with rich people. And there is this different way that they act towards their friends. Like, oh, you should be, you know, happy that you're my friend. Like you should Mm. feel special. So I think that there was a dynamic there uh, because these other kids in this Netflix uh, documentary didn't seem like they came from super wealthy prominent. They're just regular kids that he went to high school with. Right. Mm -hmm. 
uh, and they get to ride around on his boat. But unfortunately, his boat, his rules. And that night, he was extremely intoxicated. They were begging him. And I'm thinking, you're watching the security cam footage of them walking out of the bar to the boat. And you can see that they're stopping him and like trying to reason with him. And I'm like, why didn't every single one of you walk away and get an Uber? Like, Weren't they right all underage too? Yes. I mean, and they were. All, I mean, the girl was like 18, right? Yeah, and Paul was uh, only 20, I think, mm. 19 or 20, and using his older brother's ID to buy alcohol. Mm. If he even needed that in a little town like yeah. Hampton, right? I remember the South was just so different than it is out here in the West, where I felt like you could, you, you definitely could get away with stuff if you were somebody. So. Um, so they're all underage and they're coming up to this bridge. And when you look at the pictures of this bridge, it's the kind of thing where you would be like in idle going slow. It's a very low bridge with lots of wood beams coming down. Like there's very narrow, low passages to get through this bridge. It's something you want to navigate carefully, especially at dark mm -hmm. under the influence. And he plows into that thing at top speed. It's amazing that the other members of that boat were not more injured it's crazy that one person got like the worst of it well like two of them, of them fell out right the girl and yeah. then one other person they all got they all got banged up a little bit scrapes cuts bruises but this girl they said she got a massive head injury went into the water and then drowned and it Jeez. took days to find her body now here's where it gets so much more suspicious in addition to him showing up to the hospital and immediately trying to control the scene, talking to the teenagers, telling him, I'll be your lawyer. Don't say anything. I'll represent you. Very tricky, right? If he convinces them that he's going to rush in to their defense, be their lawyer, don't worry, don't say anything. Well, if he can convince them not to talk, then he can tell the police anything he wants. And what he wants the police to hear is that it was the other guy driving the boat, not his son. Um, then in the days afterwards, the boat should be considered a crime scene, but yet, and nobody else could go near it, but yet Alec Murdaugh, Maggie Murdaugh, their friends, they're just going down to the boat. They're doing stuff. They're moving things, cleaning stuff, totally controlling the crime scene, which is something you also see him do at the murder site. He very much brings in all of his lawyer buddies and they immediately start controlling that crime scene and making it impossible for law enforcement to really conduct the right kind of investigation they need. Um, and the defense argued quite a bit that there wasn't enough evidence to convict him because law enforcement did a sloppy job. But I would argue that law enforcement gave him so much benefit of the doubt that it wasn't him, that they never even executed a search warrant on his house. They didn't do anything to investigate him for months mm -hmm. at all. And therefore the evidence was lost. So anyway, I digress. So the boat accident really turned the tide. The community now is, I think, in my opinion, being from the South, uh, they're at the point where they're tired of living under the tyranny of the Murdoch family who just seems to be able to do anything to anybody. This is before any financial stuff comes out and never get in trouble. This guy is walking around with a badge. He had blue police lights installed in his car illegally. Wow. Like, but nobody seemed to care. So was he out there pulling people over? Like, right. honestly, honestly, Kelly, I will tell you that for this man, 
because in the days after the roadside shooting, he checked himself into rehab and he had his lawyers call SLED, which is the South Carolina Law Enforcement Division that was handling the investigation, called SLED to suddenly confess to everything. So my thoughts are, except the murder, he didn't confess to the murder, but he confessed to all these financial crimes mm -hmm. and to setting up the roadside shooting. What is he really hiding that he would confess to all of that? And I'm telling you, whatever that is that he's really hiding, that's the real story. And that's what I want to know, because it's not just this was all still smoke and mirrors. And if we knew what he really didn't want us to know, it would go way deeper and way farther, really actually hooks me into this case, because what we don't know is what I want to know. But we probably will never know because I think he confessed to this in order to keep other stuff from coming out. I was going to ask you if you had conspiracy theories. Yes. Okay. All right. Well, let's take a break and then get into okay. conspiracy theories. All righty. All right. So we're back. Okay, Kelly, I'm so fired up. This case really gets me going. All right. So this is what actually you're going to do your conspiracy theory. I'm going to do my conspiracy. This is what gets okay. me excited about this case because it's not what we know. That's so interesting. And wow, yeah. I will say, yeah, you're right. You couldn't make a movie, this into a movie. Nobody would believe it. The prosecution in their own. And I think even the judge might've said, you can't make this stuff up. Like it's so true. It's just out there. And I think that's what he was betting on. I think part of him was like, it's so crazy, you couldn't believe it. So don't, right? Just don't believe it. But so as I'm doing all this, listening to the trial and covering this case, as I do, I'm trying to figure out what would make a man who had built his whole life on a house of cards, basically, his whole life is a lie. Why stop now? Why all of a sudden, have your lawyers call SLED and confess to enough financial crimes to put you away for life. The, this man was never getting out of prison again, no matter what happened in that trial today. And he knew that. He's known that since he made this decision to have that meeting. So that, that just makes me really think, what would drive a man to to disclose all these lies that are absolutely true right now that he's told it it's all been uncovered uh he's telling the truth and and like i said before the break it's got to be that there's a bigger lie mm -hmm. or a bigger thing in play that he doesn't want us to know and i'm not, i'm scared to say this out loud what if what if i'm right and then they come after me because i solved the case okay See, you need, so, you need podcast protection, a podcast protection plan. I do. And there's a reason we've been very anonymous in this <laughs> podcast. In case one day <laughs> I need to out, uh, you know, some uh, major criminals. Well, here's my, my thing. So in the course of the trial, they had alluded, made some small references about his connection to organized crime. Mm -hmm. So... Mm -hmm. A big piece of this case we haven't discussed yet that is like a huge, like this does not compute part of this case is that when he goes in to meet with SLED and he says, I'm stealing 
millions of dollars a year from my law firm, from my clients. He's getting crazy bank loans. He's got everything leveraged that he can. Where's all that money going? Right. You got to explain to where the money's going because. Well, didn't he try to convince everybody that he had a bazillion dollar a week opioid habit or something? Okay. And everybody was like, you're trying to convince what? (laughs) Let's talk about the opioid addiction. So he tells investigators that in that meeting that he is doing 40, 50, and sometimes even $60,000 worth of opiates a week. Kelly? You're looking at me like I'm going to be shocked by this, but I legitimately don't know the going price of opioids. Okay, but I, I know that the people who usually do them are not right. I do. I think like, so. I um, know the price of opioids. Okay. okay. An average, an opiate, a high powered opiate like uh, oxycotton or oxycodone, mm-hmm. which is what he claims to be doing, oh. runs about a dollar a milligram street value. Now, if you're buying it in bulk, and okay, let's adjust for inflation, let's say $2 a milligram, uh, double what I knew it to be back in my days. Uh, so let's say that you factor in though, he's buying them in bulk. So that's and we have to keep in mind too, that while he's supposedly such a hardcore addict that he's spending $60,000 a week, he's also got a full-time job and a family and like a, a normal loving, like, life. Yeah. Loving father, devoted husband. And that the only a- reason people know he has an opioid problem is because he tells everybody about it. Now, Not because they're like, oh, you seem to have a problem. He tells everybody. Now his brother and his son went on the stand and they testified. And I think even the housekeeper testified. Uh, It was known that he did struggle with opioid addiction. Okay. But I still just need to like put this into perspective for us. Even if you were paying $2 a milligram, that is, and he, he said on the stand, I was doing a thousand milligrams a day. Okay. That's $2,000 a day. 2,000 times seven does not equal $40,000. It doesn't equal 50. Was he buying them for all of his friends too? Well, nobody came forward with that. So we can only go on the information we have, right? So in his own words, if he was paying the most ridiculous prices ever, despite the fact of buying in bulk. And let me just say, and I I want to say that a thousand milligrams of opiates would just kill a person. It would kill a horse. But after reading the Matthew Perry book and knowing what I know, yes, if you have an opiate addiction for 20 years, which is what Alex Murdoch claimed he had been using for 20 years, is it possible that you have adapted your body to getting up to a thousand milligrams a day? Okay, I'll buy it. I will, I will buy it. I will take that and I will believe you. But explain to me how $14,000 worth of drugs that you use a week to a thousand milligrams at two dollars a milligram equals 40 to 60 thousand it doesn't so i'm telling you that yes was he spending some money on opiates absolutely he had Mm -hmm. an opiate addiction his brother testified to him going through withdrawals his brother went on the stand and talked about him shitting his pants in the Mm -hmm. back of his car i heard about this why would you say that like as if we didn't like this guy enough let's just go ahead and throw it out there I have been with people who have gone through opiate detox. It is that bad. It is mm-hmm. horrific. I don't understand why when you went through the detox, you would ever take that pill again. 
Mm-hmm. One time of that, I think, should cure anybody, but not Alec. He went through it many, many times, according to his family. But it still does not equate to the millions of dollars that he stole from his law firm. The math is not there. So where was the money really going? That is, to me, the real interesting fact of this case. And so if we consider that he's got known connects to organized crime, that's the conspiracy theory. And unfortunately, anything I say after that is just me totally cooking shit up out of nowhere. I mean, I will say that in general, when we hear about these kinds of cases, and I keep mentioning the Tom Girardi case, just because I don't actually follow these kinds of cases often, and that's the only one I hear about on a regular basis. In that case, I'm like, where is the money? Because they were living it up, but not really living it up. Like they were just living like someone who was a, you know, they were living like they probably would have been living if he was the attorney that he was. So, you know, for the, the tons and tons and tons of money that went missing, that was stolen from these families, I really genuinely don't understand where the money went. So for Tom Girardi, I'm convinced that it's all in offshore bank accounts and in places to make sure that it'll never be touched. I think he was a a really smart. I just don't really understand the point of that. If you're so old, like who is it for? Like, who are you offshore bank accounting it for? He didn't care about his wife. He did not (laughs) know. I mean, he was having an affair, but he was having an affair with someone who was also had tons of money. So like, I just. I mean, is he just, there are people, Elon Musk, I think that um, who just need all the money. You know what I I mean? That when you're rich or when you are a rich, powerful lawyer specifically, I think that you might end up getting into some conversations and some back rooms. I think you might have some clients you help over the years that lead to conversations. And then you suddenly are doing things that are unscrupulous maybe Mm. because they are holding something on you Mm. or maybe because you are trying to deal in a world that to you feels even more exciting and powerful. Like if Mm. you could think uh, how exciting and powerful it must have felt for Alec Murdaugh his entire life to be the son of his father, be in that family, to have that generational wealth, to have that name, a law firm literally created by your ancestors, a legacy, right? Uh, How, and that you could manipulate and did manipulate the legal system, the, the law enforcement system, the community you lived in for so many years undetected. Wouldn't it be tempting to go a little bigger and better? And I think that whatever type of way that looks is sort of what we consider organized crime because you start talking about bigger criminal enterprises. So whether that's the mafia or motorcycle gangs or I guess that's just like so a world that I just don't understand at all. Like I don't understand the point of it or like what, I don't really understand what all these people are doing or why they exist or like what, I just don't get it. And it's not something I really want to know about you know, like mm-hmm. they're just like, I, I think I told you, or like, I just don't have the bandwidth for like hearing more about how terrible people are, you know? <laughs> so it's like, there are just some things where I'm like, 
Now, if you're really just going to tell me that everyone is a lizard person and, you know, no. the Illuminati really is ruling the earth. I'm like, I don't have the space for that in my brain. That's I really just going. don't. I need to have I'm... like a, a world where there are good people and it's not completely corrupt. And I feel like this is just edging toward no, I... the world is completely corrupt. No, I think this is the what you should take from this is that rich people uh who who create legacies right like we we hear some rich actors who say my kids have to work for their money i'm rich they're not rich right yeah. but when you have legacy families families that really are constructed around the idea of getting as much wealth elon musk i think is one of them uh getting as much wealth and then making sure they hand it down that that wealth stays within their family and then they just keep accumulating as much wealth as possible and as much power as possible, I think there's a an inherent danger. And I mean, I think it's obvious, right? But I think this is just it on display. This is why it is bad for one family, one man to get this much power in a small community. You told me last week, Kelly, you said for such a prominent guy in South Carolina, I've never heard of him. And I'm like, yeah. me either. He wasn't prominent in South Carolina. He wasn't prominent in Columbia or Charleston. He was prominent in where he was, Hampton, right? This community of a few thousand people, he was a big fish in a little tiny pond, right? And I think to go back to my point, it's enticing to be a bigger fish in bigger ponds. And I think he got in involved with organized crime of some sort, whatever that is. I don't want to delve into it. I don't even want to speculate, but I think that whatever happened to his wife and son, I honestly believe that he killed them because what was going to happen would be worse to him or to them. Because it wasn't a mafia. This isn't a hit. This isn't an expertly executed shotgun to the temple that was immediate. These were sloppy. I mean, this was a brutal crime scene. Multiple gunshot wounds. Really? On the See, ground. I don't actually yes. know anything about it. Oh, Were they killed at the same time, or did one of was one of them killed and the other one came and then they were killed? Okay, let me just take a pause here to explain that because I do think this is very important, and I think it's why he also got convicted. So uh, they had a hunting property. There's a main house about uh, a minute or two drive away on this humongous property mm-hmm. was what they called the kennels where yeah, the dogs yeah. lived and there was also like a a, a big barn that housed uh, their machinery so alec and maggie and paul had all gotten on this golf cart and driven down to the kennels as they would do they're all standing around talking the snapchat video is taken where paul's looking at the dog's tail and you hear alec in the background right And then just seconds later, Paul and Maggie's cell phones stop being used forever. They're Mm. both involved in text conversations. They're both actively using their phones. Their phones are recording step movement. Um, uh, Paul is actively involved in uh, several conversations. He's planning to go to the movies. He's talking about this dog's tail. He's trying to send videos. Mm -hmm. And suddenly within like a couple of minutes of each other, both phones go silent forever. They Mm. never are used again. Alec Murdoch says that, yeah, he was on that video. This is his news story. He was on that video. He was talking to them. He jumps on the golf cart and he gets out of there. 
That's how he actually said, I just got out of there. That to huh? me, that to me is like, he knew something, mm-hmm. a couple of things, either he knew something was coming and he needed to get out of there mm-hmm. because whoever he was working with or whatever was going on, those people were coming to kill them or he killed them and got out of there mm-hmm. or, and this is hard for me to believe because I'm like, well, where is this other person? if he had a helper or if he uh, hired a hitman, But it was very telling that in his testimony, he used the words, and I got out of there. I was, it was hot. We're talking June in South Carolina. It was hot. I was getting sweaty. I didn't want to be there. I got out of there. I feel like as a parent, if I had just been at the scene and then my husband and child were murdered brutally, my thoughts would have been, Oh my God, I can't believe I left. Why did, if I'd only stayed one more minute, right? I think a but lot they of people... showed, like his phone showed that he was like looking up restaurants after and stuff. That they don't know. But what was interesting is that the, during the entire time of the video, the Snapchat video and the moments where Paul and Maggie's phones go silent for the last time uh, and, and him being at the kennels and coming back to the house, his phone isn't recording any data. It's off or in airplane mode it's not recording anything at all and he's on his phone all the time and then as soon as he is going to leave oh, well today house, i totally I, like the i phone heard comes back on. Uh, the whole day his phone's having activity mm-hmm. and then suddenly there's like a 20 minute window <laughs> it just so happens his wife and son are murdered mm-hmm. so his phone goes totally off okay and then it comes back on and what time of day is this late evening so between 8 30 and 9 o'clock p.m but in the summer so it's still light outside so they're all at the kennels together and so uh paul was shot at the feed room i guess where they keep all the animal food so he's actually standing in the doorway uh, or right inside the doorway of the feed room and he's shot i think twice and then the way they described it is that maggie was like right around the corner of the building Mm -hmm. and it looked like that she was killed second because her phone goes off a few seconds later than mm-hmm. Paul's does. Uh, whereas it doesn't get used again a few seconds later. So they're thinking she was the second one. So it's like she was coming around the corner when she hears the gunshots, like the way the prosecution said it was running to her baby, right? Mm-hmm. Hearing the gunshots and running, but literally just right there. They're they're just feet from each other, a few mm-hmm. yards. That They're not that far apart at all easily, but they were shot with two different guns. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, one could argue that one person used two different guns to make it, to throw it off. Because, of course, they said, well, it's got to be two shooters. There's two different guns. But, pe- you know, plenty of people are like, well, you can literally have two different guns and yeah, it shoot seems one like a and really, put it down and shoot the other. It seems like a really dumb thing that someone who owns a town thinks he could just get away. Like, it's so dumb it's so dumb you know what i mean it's not like a smart (laughs) it's not a smart argument and that he would get on the stand and lie because you know it's one thing to see all this on youtube and and to hear it with all the like news commentary but there's a feeling you get i i i get i i don't know if you get it but when you're in a room with someone who is just totally bullshitting you there's like it just feels wrong Mm -hmm. And I think that if he'd have just sat there and said nothing the whole trial, I think we'd have had a lot better chance of a not guilty verdict today. 
But when you get up there and you lie in front of people, they can tell. Amber heard. They can tell, right? And it's interesting, these last three cases we've really done like deep dives into, the Johnny Depp, Amber Heard case, the Casey Anthony case, and then this case, it's really about lying Mm -hmm. and about people thinking how far can they take a lie? How far can they push this where people will believe me? And it's every time they seem, you know, so dug into it, like they just are going to continue believing it and preaching it thinking that eventually we just have to be like, okay, it must be true. Yeah. Like this person is so convinced. I mean, but it's like, in reality, I, can, I can forgive the lies if the people are like, sorry, I was stressed. My son just died. My wife just died. Yeah. I was talking out of my ass. I didn't even know what I was saying. But yeah. it's when you dig in, it's when mm-hmm. he when he kept saying he wasn't there that I was just like I don't understand why you can say I mean but we know you were yeah like do you think that we don't know you I mean obviously he thought that we wouldn't know that he was but yeah I think like I said I think he's so he he's smelled his own shit for so long he believes it so thoroughly I honestly believe that he is so convinced he's above the law yeah that he can't even stop. I'm like, cause even the judge today was like, I'm going to give you one more chance. Cause he was like, you can say anything you want on your behalf. Alex Murdoch stands up and says, I'm innocent. I did not kill my wife, Maggie. I did not kill my son, Paul, Paul. The judge gives him this big lecture, disappointed, you know, come on guy. Nobody believes you and gives him one more chance. And he literally word for word, just repeats, I am innocent. I did not kill my wife. And I'm like, I hate this in people. Like when you have been caught, just stop it. Because, mm-hmm. and why? It's not just because I want people to, you know, admit their guilt, but it's because that in that moment, that is when a human steps foot on a different course in their life, potentially. You can start to be free he's going to prison no matter what like Mm -hmm. just free yourself yes he's going to die in prison and then he's going to die again in prison because he has consecutive (laughs) they're going to bring him back to life the judge said to him he's like i bet that paul and maggie visit you have visited you every night of your life since this crime and alec murdoch nods yes they have and he says and they will continue to visit you every night and you are going to have to remember the look in their eyes the last time you looked at them oh my god he was serving it cold I was like I love this judge and I I mean like because I have to believe that somewhere under all that is a real person being like ah this sucks damn it He's got me nailed to the wall and it sucks. I just like, I really, and I think this is why I had such a hard time with the Casey Anthony thing. I have such a hard time wrapping my brain around people who kill their children. I can understand killing a spouse. Yeah, That makes sense to me. That's just some rando person that you have to be with. After but, the podcast, uh, we should just chat. Um, 
off but the like, <laughs> but I mean, I genuinely, it's like my brain that does not compute in my brain. Yeah. I can't, I can't function I'm in a world you. where that happens. And so it's just but like, I naturally, people, people do it all the time, but it's like my that. brain just won't don't allow myself to understand that that happens, you know, like I just, it's so hard and for me. And that's why I actually feel a little more comfortable in the scenario that either he hires someone to do it or he knew it was going to be done and something like the thing that is like coming up for me is that maybe some organized crime organization or some person that he had had some bad business dealings with or whatever that looked like was like I'm going to you know you have the choice to save yourself and Buster or your wife and your son. You tell me which one. Pick. Well, because that's the or thing. Some, or some crazy shit like that, right? That's the thing that makes no <laughs> sense too, is that if he genuinely thought, oh, these people are after us, all these people have been after us, which is what he was trying to convince people of, then why isn't he concerned about his other son? Why isn't he concerned about yeah. his brothers? Zero why isn't he concerned about, about anyone else son. in his family? He's not even remotely concerned. He didn't call his other son. He didn't go, oh my God, you're, yeah. you're my so wife and, and son have been killed. I have to check on everybody else in my family. He didn't do anything. Why of say that. at the scene of the crime? I, I, my thoughts about this case are if I came home to, we have property. If I came home, and found my husband and child murdered. I would be calling the police as I'm driving away. I would be driving to the police station. I'd be like, um, active shooter. Like, who knows the circumstances? Why would you just? Well, he stayed at. The, I mean, he was standing right there just, when the the uh, cleaning lady or whoever was murdered. I mean, you know, like that's yeah. it worked before. Why wouldn't yeah. it work now? Like, I think that. But I'm I saying if, there, if there's he was a, really afraid, if he was really afraid of someone, I think he would get in the car and leave. Well, he didn't follow through at all. I think he had all these, all of these outs. Like, if they don't believe this, then I'll say this. If they don't believe yeah. this, then I'll say yeah, this. Totally. And I don't think he had follow through with any of them. You know what I mean? I think, I think the big problem in this case was that there was no life insurance. If Maggie and Paul had had life insurance, this would have been a two day trial. They had life insurance. He was in financial problems. Here's the wait <laughs> expert that they didn't about have life insurance. No. How There's do you? No, how are you rich like that? And you're what? There's no financial gain for Alec if they die. He, on the other hand, had twelve million dollars in life insurance on himself. So again, who does he value here? So yeah, that was the hard sell. Was that? this doesn't solve any problems. So mm -hmm. why kill them? Which is what makes me lean towards this was part of some sort of organized crime, like mm -hmm. warning of like, you know, they, they did send someone to kill him. They knew, I don't know. And this was a warning or it was some sort of situation where he was like having to choose because he was in so deep that this, you know, cause like my understanding of the mafia and maybe this is just based on movies is that if you can't pay them back, then you pay in blood and that means they take your most dearly loved ones i think they proved that he loved definitely his son paul like it's shocking to think he would kill his son paul i i honestly have a hard time wrapping my head around that so to me it feels like it was part of something bigger and that's why he was willing to confess to all these financial crimes 
which he could have just played dumb and said nothing for years. But I think he did that to try to draw away some attention because of the murders from himself or from somebody else or from some organized plot. But there was some benefit. I will guarantee you this. Whatever the benefit was of Maggie and Paul being shot, because it had to, for some reason, be both of them. Couldn't have just been one. Whatever the benefit, whoever benefited from that is the key piece of why that murder happened. Because you only kill people for benefit. Now, having said that, I will also tell you that I think that a person who's been strung out on opiates for 20 years probably does not logically process information in the way the rest of us do. And it's very possible that maybe they see some sort of out or some sort of solution by killing their wife and son now, was that he, a normal person doesn't see. Was he doing drugs when this happened? Yes, they proved this in trial. They had gone to a Carolina baseball game. And okay. he thought, oh, we were such a happy family. We drove to Columbia. We're watching the Gamecocks. And then the prosecution comes in and is like, hey, check out these text messages we recovered. Turns out Alec didn't go to that game. He stayed in the hotel room begging for a late checkout because he was detoxing from mm. opiates because his wife and son found out that he was back on them because he had yeah. detoxed many times and they were starting to watch him and, uh, and really try to curb his usage of it. Mm-hmm. So they had found the pills and flushed them or whatever. So he had gone through a detox. But he says in his testimony that by Monday, the next day, the day of the murders, he had already acquired a bag full of pills. He's back on the opiates that day. And the pills were in his pocket when SLED arrived to do their investigation. So mm-hmm. he lied to SLED about being at the kennels because he was nervous about the pills in his pocket and he just was coming up with crazy lies. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. I'm going to just tell you. But anyway, but so he was in some sort of roller coaster ride of detox and getting back on the pills, which was definitely influenced by his wife and son. Mm -hmm. And that definitely throws another like crazy aspect into this case. Did he flip out? Was this just all a drug addict thing? You know, he just had enough of these two people. Supposedly, Paul was called the little detective because he always was going mm. around searching all the house, trying to find his dad's pills and would then get rid of them, forcing his dad into like a involuntary detox until he could whatever connect with his uh, drug buddy and get more pills, which he would just do, you know. Mm. Um, so wow. yeah, so there's this whole other aspect to it of like, maybe it was just some low level drug addict shit where he's like, I'll show them in a moment of anger. Cause it, to me, it looks more like a crime of passion. Right. Mm-hmm. But with some forethought or some thought because of the two guns and the alibi he establishes afterwards to that he knew enough as a, as an attorney that if he was going to do this. He was going to make it look like something else, right? Do opiates make you paranoid? I can't speak as someone who's done uh, 20 years worth of opiates and is up to the thousand milligram 
in my opinion, no, it's like heroin. Nothing matters. You don't care about anything. Like everything's all good. You know, it's about the happiest you can be. The problem with opiates is that there's a balance in life. And if you push the happy button for so much, you know, for eight hours, mm -hmm. then you get eight hours where you get the unhappy button pushed, right? And the more you push the happy button, the more the unhappy button has to get pushed. So that's why detox is a thing. Because if you're doing pills every day for weeks, months, even years on end, and then there's finally a day where it stops, you've got to like pay all that back and like feel bad. That's my personal pers perspective of it. And I think mm -hmm. Matthew Perry explains that uh, really well in his book uh, also. But there's a, a price you pay for any high and you can save it off the price, but uh, most people have to at some time pay the piper, right? You gotta, you gotta face the music on that one. So, so it could definitely go to state of mind if he was after 20 years suddenly on like a, a roller coaster ride where he can't just maintain anymore because his family's on to him. Very interesting, you know, way to think about this. Mm. It's so convoluted. I'm telling you, I could just go down and down and down the rabbit hole. I think like Casey Anthony, we will never know. The truth of this case, certainly Alec Murdoch's not going to tell us. Mm -hmm. Nobody else was there to tell us. Um, unfortunately, the dogs can't talk. I mean, well, I do. I am curious if we'll ever hear from the other son. And I think it will completely depend on one, if there is like, if there are third parties involved. Mm -hmm. And two, um, how set he is. Yeah. for life after this because if he needs money he might talk yeah well apparently the property at moselle was in maggie's name so this is kind mm -hmm. of one of the like you could speculate that this was a motive that uh what alec needed in that day where some of his were some of the financial crimes not all of them but some of the financial crimes were starting to catch up with him the law firm was approaching him uh, on the day that they were murdered earlier that day he had kind of been caught um, not the big catch, but they were uncovering some of the key pieces of evidence and, and light bulbs were going on. So there's a chance that perhaps the motive was that because the property was in Maggie's name and because he realized that he was going to suddenly need to come up with a bunch of money fast in order to cover for his crimes, because that's how he had done it in the past. Like people would kind of be like, hey, what's going on here? And then he would suddenly just be like, oh yeah, sorry. That money was just right here. <laughs> Crazy. Mm. And they'd be like, okay, cool. R great. Gotcha. Uh, thanks. And so that kept happening. But so there was this point where he couldn't come up with the money. So that day, Judy Seconder, the uh, CFO of the law firm had confronted him, uh, was sort of one of the first key pieces of evidence against him. And um, some think that maybe... He knew that Maggie would never agree to sell the property at Moselle, which would generate the income to cover that issue. Um, or that it just in that moment, as a drug addicted person, you're like, I could just kill her. I can sell the place real quick. I mean, I don't have to have the argument with her. Then I can also blame it on this boat case issue to make that go away. I mean, maybe it seemed like the perfect crime to him at the time. but. There's Do you a think that, that he knew that his son and wife were there? 
he knew they were both there. What he, I guarantee he didn't know is that his son was recording a Snapchat video. Well, he the reason thought, I say that is because you could, he could have just planned to kill her yeah. and had brought two guns to make it look like it was multiple people. Yeah. And not had, and then had to go through with the son thing because the son was there. Nope. He knew the son was there. So okay. if he did it and, and they, he was convicted of first degree murder, which means he planned to do it. And if he planned to do it, then he planned to kill them both. Phone records show that he asked them to both be there. Oh, Paul geez. was 20 years old. He didn't live at home. He's off doing his own thing. Uh, Maggie lived at Edisto. She didn't like to live in Hampton because of all the heat they were getting because of that boat case. So mm. she stayed at the beach in Edisto where people didn't know them as well, right? Going back to their only prominent in their community. People didn't know them as well down in Edisto. He called them both on that day and asked them to be there, which to me shows malice of forethought. He needed them both dead. If he did this, and he was convicted, so if he did this, he did it, and he told Maggie's sister when she showed up, he said, whoever did this has been thinking about it for a long time. Wow. If he is the killer. And he knows he's the killer. Wow. He doesn't have like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde syndrome, where he honestly doesn't remember what the other personality does. Okay. If that's not. That's Isn't that kind of like one of the things that the judge said where he was like, I didn't do it. And the judge was like, well, maybe you didn't do it, but you did it. <laughs> like maybe you didn't yeah, he's saying, you did it, but you did it. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe it's not the person standing here today, mm-hmm. but the monster that you became because he's been sober now he's been in jail so he's been sober now for like 500 something days but he's like but uh i've seen that before in my courtroom it's not the person yeah. it's a monster yeah. but yeah. it's the same individual yeah. so you might separate yourself from that monster that killed your he's like i believe you probably did love your son didn't say anything about his wife mm-hmm. he said i believe you probably did love your son whom you murdered mm-hmm. it was cold I am like, it is like such a weird feeling because I'm so happy to see like, this is the patriarchy in some small, minute form being brought to its knees. This is the thing I felt when I lived in South Carolina that I wanted to escape. Mm -hmm. There was a lot of things I wanted to escape, but it was that control and power that it felt like, and I'm white, but that it felt like that rich white people had. Yeah. And even the middle class and poor As white class people didn't richest whitest friend. What <laughs> didn't <laughs> seem to play by the same rules though, right? Yeah. And then if you were of color, like then you're an all then it's all Forget a whole it. different yeah. world. Yeah. Yeah. I don't feel that out here on the West Coast. I don't and maybe I'm just not in touch with the You're not in touch. System. Yeah. Because it, it definitely is me, the same system. It's just painted yeah, a little bit differently because I think that in the South, there's this whole, there's just the vibe of everyone so nice and charming and whatever. There's a lot of of white paint over um, that that system. That system is, is the yeah. same everywhere, I think, honestly. Um, you saw it. Yeah. I, I mean, I heard about it a lot in the news. And I think you're hearing about it a lot too. Um, when you hear about like 
all of these cases with police overstepping boundaries and police forces where people have been doing these horrible things for years and years and years and it's been brushed under the rug Mm -hmm. um and so and that's everywhere now so um I don't mean it's everywhere now I mean we're hearing about it now um yeah yeah and I so I mean I do think that this is just a thing everywhere yeah and I think it's encouraging though because right now we're watching the Tom Girardi case and the Alec Murdoch case unfold we're seeing two insanely powerful influential white attorneys literally being brought to their knees and Tom Girardi I mean I don't even know is this guy like pretending to have dementia that's where I'm at with him I really don't know I mean that Tom Girardi thing is about to blow up I totally believe that he planned this all along he's like and if I ever get caught I'm gonna just play stupid all right so here's what I like um started get I got I started subscribing to Peacock so that I could watch the last season of Beverly uh, Real Housewives of Beverly Hills because um what's her name is on there okay and, and I think you also joined our Peacock membership and I want to thank you for that yes. publicly <laughs> we love our Peacock you membership. are welcome that is a well-spent dollar 29 a month um okay for 12 months and then it, I don't have it anymore but like, okay. and I watched that show anyway, and I've all, so the Tom Girardi thing is only interesting to me really, because I know all about Erica Girardi only because I wa- had been watching yeah, Hot Boys Beverly Hills. We and talked so, about her during the Johnny Depp trial. Yes. And like, I know all about, like, I've, I've been watching their relationship and I knew all about their relationship and like all this stuff. So when this Tom Girardi stuff came out, it was like, What? Because yeah. they legit seem to have like not a good normal relationship, but like the kind of relationship where we talk about like the Hugh Hefner kind of situation where it's like yeah. she was getting what she wanted, he was getting what he wanted, and she he kind of like rescued her out of I hate to say that word because women don't need rescuing from men. I don't even want to say it that way. But she was like a cocktail waitress or something like that. And she was young and she had a son and, you know, she was raising her son and and she didn't have a lot of money. And he did everything for her and her son. She, you know, she really felt indebted to him, you know? Mm -hmm. And so like, I, when it, and he wasn't very kind to her on the show, but you kind of didn't really see, like you saw it, but like they have the, you know, this thing. And then when all of this happened, all of this stuff started coming to light and she was like you just started hearing all this stuff and it's like whoa these houses are falling down and it was really interesting because then you could go back and kind of see things that you didn't see before and it's like you kind of watch all of these people that are friends with them and they're not really friends in real life they're friends you know for the show purposes but like you see how shocked how legitimately shocked they are because Tom Girardi was always like super nice to them and like really you know I don't know. Anyway, that well, we situation will... is very interesting to me and yeah. I cannot wait to oh, yeah. see how we, it plays out. We will definitely do a deep dive. So this is a little teaser, realist. We're going to definitely, because I've been a little bit following this. I've never watched like the Real Housewives, but mm-hmm. um, because there's some legal stuff and I'm definitely interested in lawyers gone wrong. And my 
I'm just going to say surface read. This is the one thing I will say about it of uh, the wife is that she's very sad and very sorry, but mostly for herself and that how this is affecting her. She does not seem that concerned about all the people whose money was stolen to enable her lavish lifestyle. I don't actually think that that's the case. I think that's how it's coming off. Okay. I don't really think, but we'll talk about it because I'll, you know, when we, when we talk about it, maybe I'll go back and watch more stuff, but all right. I want to leave this, this episode on a good note because this has been such a downer of an episode. So I'm in a great mood. (laughs) We're going to start with this downer. So Jimmy Carter is in hospice as of the recording of this, you know, and he has been for like a week. Yeah. I thought he died. Oh my God. I swear I thought he he died died. today or something. No, I thought he died years ago. Oh my God. Okay. Well, Heather, you just made yourself look like an asshole, but (laughs) but so like everyone has been really upset about this because Jimmy Carter, while maybe not like the best president in the world, was like an insanely amazing human. We did Habitat for Humanity. Like we did you building house. He, he was like, and he was still like teaching Sunday school, like up until like months ago or something. I mean, he was like the sweetest, amazing, like, yes, he really practiced what he preached. He was like a good Christian man and like acted like it, you know, Mm -hmm. which is so rare. rare. So I want to talk though about like the fact that he and his wife, Rosalind knew each other literally their entire lives he was three years old and she was one day old when they met their parents were like our story i know their parents were close friends and neighbors and they grew up together and then they were married for 76 years like this year would be their 77th wedding anniversary and he knew he wanted to marry her after yep and they are the longest living presidential couple yeah um, I knew that and, and he's the oldest president of all time mm-hmm. isn't he? yeah I knew that and no I heard something about him on the, the oldest news. living yeah yeah and I thought that they were like well so he had cancer of him like dying years ago and I was like no. oh did I miss that I'm so, so he had now. cancer a, year, a few years ago And there was this thing where there was going to be a press conference. Everybody was going to Georgia where he lives to like, you know, to hear this press conference about him, like having this cancer. And he was the one who gave the press conference. Like he popped out and everybody was like, what? And then he like totally made it through that. And, you know, all of that. But now I think he's 98 right now. Um. But yeah, I just think it, they have such a beautiful love story. Like he knew that he wanted to marry her after their first date. And he said, marrying her was the best thing that ever happened that he Aww. ever did in his entire life. And then they lived this like beautiful, wonderful life together. And yeah. I mean, they really, they are like the only people I have ever known who have literally spent their entire lives together, you yeah. know, um, and in full support of each other. And so great. And I've always thought about Jimmy Carter, who was president when I was born. Um, I've always Imagine felt that. about him <laughs> that like, he was just too good of a person to be president. I genuinely believe yeah, yeah. that like being president, you can't, you can't be a great person and so be president. I will, I'm really glad you brought that up because I will say that when I got, when I entered high school, I had this background in politics because of my family and I had an interest in law Mm -hmm. and I thought, you know, I should, and I was kind of raised in a family where it was like, 
you can be anything you want to be. You could be the president of the United States. And so I really got this thing in me in my freshman year of high school where I was like, I want to be the first woman president of the United States of America. And I really spent the next couple of years, at least internally, and I don't know if I talked about this with anybody else. So like, you're maybe like, what are you talking about? Um, but then after a couple of years, I was, I was kind of studying it and paying attention. I'm like, oh, you can't do that job and maintain your ethical principles. No. So you need to do a different job where you have influence mm-hmm. and where you make changes, but you don't have to compromise so much to get to the position. Mm-hmm. And I let go of my dream. And I've always felt that way. Um, You know, they pick people that are good candidates and who poll well. And and then you got to play the game and people Mm -hmm. that are willing to play the game. Uh, I mean, my understanding, like with JFK, you talked about the Kennedy deal. He wasn't willing to play the game and he was murdered for it. That's all the politics for today. Thank you for coming to our TED Talk. Thank you, everyone. Jimmy Carter. <laughs> well, you know, I just want to, gr- I could grandstand about Jimmy Carter, like all day I long. I see that. We maybe I need to have him. like a Jimmy Carter episode. I'm, I'm we might it. have to do that. Yeah. All right. He's we adorable. promise like we will get on these episodes and start delivering in the future. Yeah, we're, Life we're has been back a little crazy. Schedule. We got a schedule uh, set up. We're going to get back to our happy, fun topics. All right. Well, this has been really awesome. As you can tell, I get really excited about talking about trials and murder cases, especially when it's dealing with my home state, our home state. Um, this was kind of like a trip down memory lane slash PTSD episode for me <laughs> because the accents and the like, the way people look and the way things work in South Carolina, like Gosh, it has a feeling to it, don't you think, Kelly? Isn't it weird that they you can tell South Carolina people by how they look? Yes, they have a look. <laughs> it's the cornbread. I'm convinced it's got something to do with cornbread. But there's a total look. There's an accent, but there's also like I know like the law tubers I was watching. They're like this trial is crazy, and I'm like, welcome to South Carolina. The way everything works makes no sense to the rest of the world. That's why I left there. I was like, is this crazy? Am I the only one? Yes, it is crazy. The world is acknowledging right now as they watch the show. This is crazy. Mm -hmm. So I've had a really interesting emotional roller coaster ride through this trial. I appreciate you giving me some space to chat about it here. Uh, We'll talk about the Tom Girardi case in the future as that unfolds, because it is also very, very interesting. Um, Jimmy Carter, President Carter, please get well soon. We need you. Fight the good fight. No, hospice. No, we want Jimmy Carter to just die peacefully. Be and in peace. Him. Okay. Do as he wishes in peace. President Carter, please peace be in love. Peace be with you. Uh, but we love you. Yeah. And we built a house for you. I hope you mm-hmm. hope you enjoyed that. All righty. Well, until next time, keep it real. <laughs>